Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Amaphidon. Thanks for tuning in. BNN News ventured out to Waltham for tonight's first story, and it was well worth the trip. Since 1987, the sheep shearing festival of the 50-acre estate Gore Place has delighted guests from Boston and beyond. And you didn't have to close your eyes to count these sheep. Last Saturday, children saw the cuddly lambs and sheep once confined to their storybooks up close and personal. Winding, weaving, spinning and turning warm sheep's wool to woven masterpieces was the main event at this year's Gore Place Sheep Shearing Festival. City residents stepped out of their metropolitan lifestyle and experienced a taste of farm life with a petting zoo, artisanal markets, and of course, shearing sheep. The Sheep Shearing Festival is so great. Every spring, you come out, you see the newborn lambs, you see this uh, yearly expression of the of the new life of spring and you get to see the sheep get shorn and and uh, patronize all our local artisans and it just it's a great thing outdoors to do with the kids it's fresh it's it's just beautiful and we've been doing it for 10 years at least the event was right on target with plenty of activities like archery and gardening there was something for everyone it was also a chance for kids to learn about large animals and discover the wonders of agriculture. We saw dogs and sheep and horses, and it was his first time ever seeing these large animals. So it's just a very, very novel and exciting. And I think just being in the city for so long, you know, being able to just like look at them and get really close to them, it's really peaceful and feels very connected to nature. So we're very grateful to be here. We are here today with my family and kids, and we just see the animals, and everybody's so calm and happy, and uh, you know, to see the animals so close, it's uh, it's amazing for kids that live in the city. You know, never saw how the wool is made or where it comes from, not from the store or from Amazon or something like that. So it's very nice for us. And the sheep weren't the only stars of the show. Live craft making performances and artisan vendors brought fun and creativity to the community. So this is our 36th year doing this festival. A lot of people look forward to this all year long. Um, a lot of people actually tell us this really feels like the start of spring to them, being able to attend this festival, see the sheep getting their new haircuts, and getting to talk to all the different craft uh, vendors and historical performers. There's really something for everyone here. And I think a lot of people really look forward to this as just that official beckoning of spring. Onlookers watched in amazement as shorn wool was spun, woven, and transformed into warm and fuzzy toy sheep and high-quality yarn. We love seeing the sheep in spring. We love getting to see folks who are so amazing at their craft, uh, doing their work, either sheep herding or sheep shearing, and it's such a nice way to welcome spring and see all the incredible stuff that happens with sheep and with fiber arts and we just have the best time getting to see everybody. The Gore Place Sheep Shearing Festival has been a symbol of spring for guests of all ages and the fun continues to be a tradition for families. The inequality in service and affordability of transportation systems in the U.S. is staggering. But two Massachusetts state leaders have taken on this problem with the goal of creating a national fare-free system. And they made their intentions crystal clear Monday at Roxbury's Ruggles Station. The transportation disparity in Boston is widening. 
Those who use public transit need an affordable and safe resource for getting around. On Monday, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and Senator Ed Markey reintroduced the Freedom to Move Act, a bill that provides transit for all commuters at no cost. I think transportation is very much necessary and the fact that it's free it makes it very accessible for a lot of people um, who may not have um, the resources or um, financial stability to um, you know, pay for this kind of transportation. So, I mean, I think free, free anything's great, so free transportation's even better. State leaders hope that increasing access to public transit systems will help improve community livability and mobility, particularly for low-income workers and families, people of color, students, seniors, and people with disabilities. We should see this moment as an opportunity to rebuild, reimagine, and reinvigorate our public transit systems, to fix the historic injustices that are built into the physical and operational structures of public transportation in America. And finally, to deliver truly accessible, affordable, and safe public transportation for everyone. I'm always referencing the Livable Streets report uh, that enumerated just how bad these inequities are, in particular for black Boston bus riders, riding, waiting, transferring an additional 64 hours a year. That's an additional 64 hours to get to your place of work, to get to school, to get to a health care appointment, to get to child care. So when Senator Markey and I say this is literally about the freedom to move, that is so basic and so essential and something that should be an inherent right for everyone. If passed, the Freedom to Move Act will invest billions over the next five years in the form of a grant program that will support no-cost public transit, not only in Massachusetts, but also in state and local governments across the nation. This funding would improve the quality of current MBTA services, particularly in low-income and historically underserved communities. I think folks think that free transit is a fringe idea when in reality it helps speed up the system, it helps uh, reduce the friction that happens when people don't know how to pay or don't have the means to pay. So it's good for the economy, it's good to get folks back on the system. It's really a great tactic to improve transit, which we desperately need right now. So we're very supportive of this, not just because it helps low-income folks, but because it makes the transit system better as a whole. Boston has already dipped its toe in the pool with the reimbursement of fares on the 23, 28, and 29 bus routes using COVID relief funds. Ridership of these lines have topped pre-pandemic numbers, and the city hopes to continue expansion of no-cost bus routes. The Freedom to Move vision is already at work in areas like Worcester and Merrimack Valley. These changes are poised to introduce a flux of residents to the benefits of public transportation. We're here today to talk about the Freedom to Move Act, which is an effort to take these great pilots that have been happening in Worcester, Merrimack Valley, and Boston and make them system-wide and permanent. We know that free transit is working and bringing riders back to the system, but we really need state and federal funds to make free transit uh, uh, you know, sustainable long-term across the state. With the increased use of public transit, Boston seeks to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and traffic congestion. This is a moment where Everyone has to rethink how we fund public transportation. The old ways of putting it all on the backs of riders, the people who could least afford 
to figure out other alternatives and who are already doing the most to promote climate justice and reduce traffic and all the other benefits that public transit gives us, we cannot put it on the backs of our essential workers and families who are already riding transit. This has to be funded in a way that is equitable to all. The next stop for the act is committee debate in Washington, D.C. For transit riders across the U.S., relief may be close at hand. The fight for more affordable housing in Boston has made major progress in Mattapan, and the change in sentiment around mixed-income housing is fostering a community where people from all walks of life can thrive. Welcome home. This Tuesday, Mattapan residents celebrated the city's latest effort in affordable housing at the grand opening of The Loop at Mattapan Station. The Loop is a 135-unit affordable mixed-use housing and commercial space that was once an underutilized parking lot. The new building offers relief for a city that has been struggling with a housing crisis. Almost 60% of rental households in Mattapan are rent burdened, meaning that they're putting more than a third of their income just towards keeping a roof over their heads. That is a hard way to live, a way that we should not be putting anyone into balancing and juggling, especially if you're trying to pay off debt, pay for childcare, cover medical expenses, save up for retirement. Mattapan and Boston needs more affordable housing. And a big way we can meet those needs is by funding and building more affordable projects like this one. Accessibility is a key feature of the new housing, which is walking distance from the MBTA bus stop, Mattapan trolley, and a mere block from the Mattapan commuter rail station. Inside, tenants can look forward to modern, energy-efficient dwellings, an equipped gym, community rooms, and the convenience of grocery store daily table, the Loop's first tenant. Most importantly, the housing offers a new beginning for Mattapan. And the Loop is, above all, a new neighborhood. It is 135 brand new unit affordable housing, an innovative grocery store, a super thermal performing construction, and yes, more parking. And we're extremely proud of that. And most importantly, it is a home that promises security, identity, hope, health, and opportunity. It is where children will grow up, riding bikes on the Neponset Greenway Trail, where families will share food and greet each other getting off the train after a hard day's work and where lifelong friendship will be forged. Racial and economic equity affect every facet of our society, particularly healthcare access and treatment. In the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, Boston health professionals are taking stock and taking steps to do better for our communities. COVID-19 put the world on pause in 2020. As we navigated masks, social distancing, and testing, it was clear that things would never be the same. Our nation's response to the pandemic exposed the many cracks of our broken healthcare system and who exactly was suffering the brunt of it. Three years later, the city's health community certainly knows more. And on Wednesday, Boston Public Health Commission held the one-day symposium, Advancing Health Equity in Boston, to build on that knowledge. What we learned from COVID-19 in the last three years is that we need responses that are truly community partnered 
and community-led. We need to be working with the people who are closest to being vulnerable, who are, have been marginalized, because they actually have solutions to the problems that are ongoing and that are pervasive. But oftentimes we don't give them the resources to actually do the work. We tend to, you know, keep the resources um, within institutions as opposed to working and sharing resources and actually shifting the resources so that communities can truly lead. From 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., attendees listened intently at the Central Library in Copley Square. The symposium, divided into seven sessions, featured panel discussions of leaders from public health, social justice, and city government arenas, with conversations touching on the need for health providers to look deeper and dismantle the systemic racism ingrained our healthcare system. The solution is about, you know, the social, for me, the social determinants of health is a place to live, a decent place to learn, a decent place to call home, a faith place, a place that I can go to church and be with my neighbors. All those conditions are the conditions that we want to be able to build together. And from this experience of COVID-19, we need to do better when we think of public health. We need to know that Public health is not just going to your doctor's appointment, getting the prescription, and that's it. It's you as a medical doctor finding out what else is happening at home. I think that the way that we need to advance health equity is first making sure that the medical institution has a reckoning with its involvings with systemic racism, um, going from research even to today's current disparities. And I think that we need to make sure that these institutions make doing the work to rectify these historical wrongs a, a moral imperative at the highest levels of leadership. So that means that making sure that we're actively investing in community partnerships and ensuring that community members are involved in every step of the way as we continue to think about health equity. Symposium guests examined challenges stemming from COVID and passionately voiced their experiences. The common theme, those who are directly affected know what ails them and should play an integral part in deciding where financial resources go. We should spend money doing our research in those who are sitting up here and are holding the resources because we need to understand why is it that those resources are not coming up. So I agree with all of you. We need to keep on working. Let's spend money in figuring out who is the 1% that is holding all of those research, the researches. And, and make sure that our community is a healthy community. We know how to take care of our community. We just need to figure out who or how many are those who are not allowing us to keep on growing. And then we can come out of that hole that we're talking about. And now for our BNN News Breakdown. In 2020, the murder of George Floyd pushed millions to advocate for black lives. And as a result, more people started to question the lack of accountability when it comes to police violence. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey introduced legislation to end qualified immunity in the state, allowing citizens to sue police officers and other government officials. Last Wednesday, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley reintroduced the Ending Qualified Immunity Act and ensured that the bill would hold law enforcement accountable for their actions. More than 1,000 people in the U.S. were killed by police last year, according to Mapping Police Violence. Markey and Presley have both said that for decades, qualified immunity has protected officers who use excessive force, especially in black and brown communities. To learn more about the bill, please scan the QR code on the screen. And to find out more about police violence, you can visit mappingpoliceviolence.us. 
This week, we had the joy of having our neighbor, 826 Boston, come to the studio to share the work of the nonprofit that does wonderful work for K-12 students in the city. Jan Ciso is the Director of In-School Programs and Community Engagement at 826 Boston, having spent time as a youth worker and informal STEM educator. Here's our conversation. So H2Sex Boston is a nonprofit writing, tutoring, and publishing organization. Um, and our mission is to empower young people, amplify their voices, and really help them step into being leaders in their communities. And even though we opened our doors in 2007, we're actually one of nine different chapters in the 826 National Network. Mm -hmm. So we're not the oldest 826. Um, we're just 826 Boston. But it also means that we have a whole network um, all over the country of people that we can partner with and learn from and really amplify what it is that we do and learn from the success that's been built over years uh, in other spaces. Fabulous. And our viewers got a little taste um, with the half, 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 half marathon <laughs> that we aired last week. Uh, but I'd love to know how many students do you serve and uh, what are the programs that 826 Boston offers? Oh, good question. Since we opened, we have served around 30,000 students, um, around 340 teachers in 80 different schools. Hmm. Um, so we're building up those numbers. They're going to keep growing. They're going to keep getting bigger. Um, but as for our programs, we have a whole suite of programming that we do. We do some partnerships with schools to do programming during the school day. And then we also do after-school programming. So we do... Yes tutoring after school at our tutoring center that is truly two doors down from here. Um, you might have seen it a little bit. We also have our writer's room pro program where we have um, spaces within schools that we can then run our partnerships from and work with teachers. Um, we have a STEM literacy initiative. We do college essay support for both seniors and juniors. It's junior, it's junior season for our college essay work. Mm. And then we, uh, our newest branch of programming is the in-school programs where we are partnering with teachers to go into schools where we don't have a physical space. So we're making these partnerships with teachers and going in and supporting them in writing projects that are not just about writing. There's a lot of um, cross-disciplinary work. We're working with STEM and writing and finding out where those things kind of cross, working with humanities. Some of them are a little more obvious. Some of them are a little more uh, interesting to help people realize where the connections are. Great. So it sounds like a lot of cross-pollination going on at the organization. That's great. Uh, and 826 Boston, it definitely it requires a lot of hands on board to provide the one-on-one -on -one attention that you give your students. Uh, who are some of these partners that you, you work with, and how do you go about uh, finding your extensive team? We are, although our staff is rather small, we are mighty in numbers. We have around 500 volunteer members in our volunteer court mm. um, annually that we recruit from all over the place. We have some partnership with, partnerships with local universities to have service learners that will spend a whole semester um, volunteering with us in a consistent way. We have some, um, some corporate partners that also support us. We also um, are partnered with the AmeriCorps program. So we oh. have 15 fellows that serve with us annually. And it's really how we're able to get those numbers. It's through mainly our volunteer corps that we're able to really make sure that we're meeting the needs of our students and getting that individualized support that they need. 
That's incredible. Um, and speaking of amplification, um, a big part of the organization, as you said, is amplifying student voices, primarily through cultivating their writing. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Young Authors Book Project and how it's building the confidence and perhaps the careers of these, uh, <laughs> these young people? Yeah, the Young Authors Book Project is really a way to demystify the entire process of writing and publishing a book. Hmm. It's really important that we help our young people understand that their words hold as much weight as any other authors. So through the, the Young Authors Book Project, they'll go through writing workshops. They will go through peer editing. They'll have a release party. We also have... Um, an, an editorial board made up of students, and these are paid positions for students to take on a leadership role and really find out what the nuts and bolts of publishing looks like behind the scenes. Wow. Um, and so it's the entire process of demystifying the entire process so that it's more accessible, so they can see themselves as writers, they can see themselves as members of that industry, hmm. and that they can ultimately be published authors and see and hold their their book at the end of the process. That's amazing. And how long does it usually take from start to finish? Oh, good question. Usually it takes about a year. Um, traditionally, we'll partner with a specific school or a specific teacher and really work that the, throughout the whole school year to come up with the final result. Um, but we actually, as of last year, tried out a new model where we were accepting community submissions to bring them together. Mm. Um, so that, and that worked out really well, and we're really excited about that. That's awesome. Um, and as we all know, it takes a village to, to run an organization. Uh, but what are some of the current needs of A26 Boston right now? Like I said, we have a lot of different programming. We have, a lot of, we have our hands on a lot of different pots. Um, but I think right now what we're most looking for, um, or what we are most looking for the community to support us in, is uh, finding volunteers that are meeting some specific needs that our students have. For example, we... Uh, have a lot of volunteers that love and are really passionate about writing, but we also are in are looking for volunteers that want to explore how that writing connects with other subjects. Mm. Or, for example, for our tutoring, we're looking for people who maybe if they don't identify as writers, they want to come and help students out with fractions or chemistry because we do that too. Uh. Um, or maybe we're also looking for bilingual. Um, specifically Spanish speakers, because we, are, we work with some schools that are bilingual Spanish speaking, and we have an entire uh, branch of our in-school program that is dedicated to that um, bilingual programming that we deliver. Mm. Those are some of our highest needs right now. All right. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and you do service the K through 12 students throughout Boston. Uh, what are some of the ways that you support students once they, they finish school? There's a lot of wanting our alumni, as we think of them. If you're, if you're with us for an, any amount of time, we consider you an alumni. But we always want our, our young people to keep coming back, whether that's being involved at any of our events and being speakers, whether that is taking on those positions of leadership, um, such as being part of the editorial board for the Young Authors Book Project, being part um, of our um, Youth Literacy Advisory Board, that uh, puts together their own publication, and it's also another paid position. And then also we always invite them to come back and volunteer. If you're going to college locally, you can come back and volunteer while you're doing that, be a service learner, give back to the students um, that are in your local community that you grew up in. 
So always part of the 826 Boston family. Yeah. And we're officially in spring. Summer's right around the corner. Uh, what are some of the, the new things on the horizon for OT, uh, A26 Boston in terms of programming? Ooh. On the horizon, we have our, we call them YLAP, the Youth Literacy Advisory Board. They're um, about to debut their book in June. The title is going to be announced very soon. So I don't even know it, but it's going to be great. I'm sure of it. <laughs> um, but they've been working on a collection of some poems and some written pieces that has been their year-long project. Um, as we're also heading into spring, we are looking forward to our college essay work with juniors over the, over the summer. That's going to be really exciting. And then we are looking towards next um, fall, starting some new partnerships with schools with um, supporting science fair and the science literacy piece there, as well as some new uh, writing workshops. And for today's edition for upcoming events in Boston, the Wild and Scenic Film Festival happening April 29th from 6.30 p.m. to 10 p.m. at the Atlantic Wharf for their first in-person event since the COVID pandemic. The festival features short documentary films from all around the world with the intention of bringing awareness to climate change and conservation. If you'd like to learn more, check out our interview with Dr. Stern from last week's broadcast available on the VOD section of our website, bnnmedia.org, or you can scan the QR code on your screen. Also on the horizon, Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater returns to Boston at the Box Center Wang Theater Thursday, May 4th through Sunday, May 7th. With a variety of new productions and company classics, the performances will transport and inspire you. Next Friday, we'll be speaking with Balin and Dira Pereira, an Alvin Ailey answer and Lawrence Native about this year's tour. For dates, times, ticket details, and also uh, open to the community daily event on May 3rd, you can go to celebrityseries.org. And that's our show for tonight. Thanks for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. And make sure to check out our BNN HD Xfinity Channel 1072. You can also hear us on the radio Fridays at 6.30 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. and Monday through Thursday, 7.30 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amathodon. I'll see you next Friday.